one of our early mission statements was we want to change the way the world looks from space and heal the earth. Welcome to Croptastic, the Interplant podcast, where your hosts, Shelly Arano of Marta Buliak and Sean Yokomizo, explore the global future of agriculture and food. So I'm really excited about this episode with Nikala from Impossible Foods. And uh, I think, Nick, you're the first employee at Impossible. Is that true? I am. Yeah, thanks for you having are. me, Shelly. Yes, I, I joined. It's almost 10 years now. Right. So the way that Nick and I met was at business school, which was 10 years ago. But I remember one of the you know questions to kick it off is I remember when you joined this company that no one ever heard of with this massive mission. Uh, it seems like you're pretty sold on it, but maybe you can start with just kind of describing a little bit of your story and then why you made that choice 10 years ago. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So my, my background has always actually been in food and agriculture. And in a lot of ways, I was trying to run away from food and agriculture. So I grew up in a small family dairy farm in the Midwest of the U.S. in Southern Minnesota. And it was a great experience for uh, being very close to family. So whether it's grandparents, aunts and uncles, neighbors, it's really a community that everyone helps each other. And it's like, you know, business life, everything is really one. And I've learned a ton about like just how to run a small business at that point. Um, And I think the other thing that really stuck with me was the connection to the land and the environment. As a dairy farmer, we're on the land 365 days of the year, taking care of crops, animals, and something. And so the, the impact of our food system on the environment was always relatively evident. And I was like, I wanted to spend my life, even in high school, doing stuff in renewable and sustainable technologies. And so in high school, I did stuff in renewable energy. Conceptually, I studied chemical engineering in college, did uh, research on uh, diesel exhaust, more cleaner combustion, designed biofuels factories, um, but didn't really know exactly what to do with that coming out of undergrad and ended up working at General Mills designing products and manufacturing systems for four years, which is fun to see how like a, a scale company like General Mills can take a product from concept to manufacturing to consumer um, but it really didn't meet the environmental mission of what I wanted to spend my life on. So that's when I went out to grad school, uh, met Shelly and many more amazing people. And I focused all on commercialized renewable energy technologies because that's where I saw the combination of science, technology, and global environmental impact coming together strongest. And at that point, so I was like, I'm done with food and agriculture. I don't see the the global impact in that for like a technology perspective. And I worked in grad school, tried to start eight companies, uh, worked in solar energy. And through the experience, I got pretty deep in the venture capital community, um, which one of the partners at a firm was talking to our founder, Dr. Patrick Brown. And once they invested in Dr. Brown, uh, introduced him to me, we started talking about the impact. And you look at the impact of animal agriculture, it's 45% of the arable land surface, more than 25% of the fresh water used each year more greenhouse gases in the entire transportation industry combined. Along with, if you think about that land use, it's the biggest driver of uh, species loss and wild wild habitats. And so I looked at that and I was like, wow, I'd never heard of anybody in agriculture talking about the system like that. And the opportunity really got to, you know, how animals are just really inefficient at taking plants and converting them into products that we like. And you can use, like my background, you can say in beef and dairy, like a beef cow would be about a 3% efficient technology in the U.S. of taking plant-based nutrients and converting them into meat. And I was in solar, where solar, as you can say, 15% efficient. And I was like, you know, that's insanely inefficient. And now you go to a beef cow being 3% efficient. The opportunity is really clear that if we can now go directly to plants and build products that consumers like better, which was a goal from day one, we make it an easy consumer choice. If it tastes better, 
better nutrition, much better sustainability, then since the efficiency is better, much more affordable as we scale, um, we can change this entire system, drive a huge global transformation and, you know, making our kids and our kids' kids' lives so much more sustainable than we have today. So it was really an easy choice to join at that point, just based on the impact that we could have. It's really nice to hear the whole efficiency efficiency aspect of it because it is an equation at the end of the day. You, you do good, but there's also it's got to be rooted in some change that's going to happen, something you know, solvable and economical. And that's where we come to you know we have to feed seven plus going on ten billion people. It has to be a scalable, efficient system to be able to do that. Right. So the next question that I I was personally fascinated with is that. Obviously, Impossible has this massive environmental impact mission. But I think what's interesting is that it looks like you guys also built a culture that represents that with social responsibility and accountability. So what was your experience? How did you make that happen? And then how do you maintain that as a company grows? Because it's one thing when you have 10 people, it's probably very different when you have 800 people. Yeah, very different. You're, you're exactly right. And our founder and I have talked many, many times on this over time is how the the company culture has to evolve. There are core pillars of the culture of what we really want to stand for and we want to um, you know, hold ourselves accountable to that we want to keep. But it has to evolve in different ways to you know, support 800 people versus you know, 10 people up front in the way you communicate, the way you talk, the way you help people feel included. You know, all of that has to change. Now, but there's some stuff that is core that doesn't change. And so we can start with impossible. It's the vision and the mission of the company. Our mission and one of our early mission statements was we want to change the way the world looks from space and heal the earth. And that's really? still today. And you look at like agricultural runoff, you know, land degradation, it's like we can literally change the way the world looks from space. And that's a really motivating, uh, glo- like globally um, aspirational vision. Now that morphs over time to how it kind of shows up to be a little more practical and not quite in the, in the clouds necessarily. Um, but it's like, we've always had a big mission and now, you know, the public mission that we've said is we want to transform the plant, uh, the agricultural ecosystem to a fully plant-based ecosystem by 2035. And we can re- take off more than a decade of greenhouse gas emissions by doing that and you know, buying us a lot of time. And so this is the type of thing that when we hire, we talk a lot about when we talk publicly about the company or products and our mission, we talk a lot about, cause it's really the core, it's a North star of what we're shooting for as a company. And so it always starts there and then you pull that into hiring. And so when we go through our hiring practices and all our interviews, every interviewer will talk about really mission connection to you know, what we're trying to do and how people think about it personally for themselves because um, food systems, environment are always very personal to people too. And as we then try to pull in the right people out, it can help you know, expand the culture, not just fit in, but expand the culture to get stronger and stronger over time. And then I think if we think about food systems in general, if you think about the global, the global culture and really the social responsibility and accountability, it's more than just you know, providing food. Like food is so tied to every element of culture and community. And so what we want to do is over time is we gain more ability to plug deeper and deeper into our local communities from anything from in Oakland and really across the U.S. now, we donated more than a million burgers last year. Um, we want to continue programs like that, expand them. And as we grow, grow our supply chains, really start working you know, deeper and deeper in the agricultural communities to help farmers and communities transition more over to a plant-based ecosystem. And that comes to a lot of the core values that we have as a company of really doing what's right, standing up for what's right, supporting our communities. And I think it's uh, our core values, our mission are so ingrained in the company. 
And when we hire the right people behind it, they get stronger and stronger over time. It sounds like it's it's almost this cyclical effect where you have the right initiatives, the right mission, and then the right people are attracted and the whole thing continues. Yeah, and it, it takes a lot of work. And I think this is, uh, you know, culture will always evolve. And if you help guide it with the right initiatives, it hopefully will evolve in the right way. We're never going to get everything right. Um, I think it's always a, a false expectation as a company to think that we're going to get everything right on day one. But we're always going to strive to do better. And I think that's right. a core from possible and what we hire for. It's like, okay, a lot of the culture is around try stuff. We're going to fail. It's okay. So fail fast, move on, learn. And that goes from experiments to how we sell to how we actually develop the culture too. And you know, we're not going to get everything right, but we're going to try. We're going to try to do everything that we can. Yeah, that really resonates with me because I think when we work on deep science, uh, you have to create this environment where people feel comfortable failing. Otherwise, you're not going to really have experiments. Yeah, that's and, part, of the, part of the scientific process, right? Right. But I think a lot of places don't actually like that. So then the, the message becomes the experiments need to succeed. And that's a problem. It's hard. And it's something that as you get bigger is actually one of the harder ones to hold on to. And I remember we have an all hands every week uh, where we get up and one, one a few years ago, our founder uh, wanted to emphasize the importance of trying things and failing and just showing some examples of how things fail, but helped us move on. And you went through a handful of, of uh, big initiatives that we had as a company. And I kind of like was listening. I was like, wow, he went through, I think it was four or five initiatives. I was like, wow, those are all four or five that I led. I like, huh, what is he saying about me? But I was actually quite proud of it because all, all five of them like pushed us forward. And you know, some of the stuff actually worked in, to a certain extent, but didn't work for X, Y, or Z. But they actually moved us forward to where we are today. And that's, a, that's what we have to keep going as a company. It's like we're still just getting started for what we need to do. And so we need to try a lot of things to be able to transform the global uh, food system where we need it to go. That's a great example. So I guess I'll shift a little bit. And this uh, next question has a bit of a story. One of our conversations that inspired me was when we were talking about paths to market. And you gave me some of the approach that you guys had to take and the decisions you made. And uh, as part of it, also asked me the same question five times, which apparently is a really good method. Um, to get someone to think about their choices. So would you talk a little bit about what what was the path to market and and how did you get there? Why why did you decide to take the path you did? I can start even from like, we went to market about five years after we started the company, which is very long on the, the venture ecosystem. Uh, but we needed to build a product that um, was going to compete with beef, compete head on head with meat from an animal. And so we really took a lot of time to develop the science and the technology and understanding what actually makes meat, fish, and dairy foods so absolutely delicious. Then as we understood that, then we decided ground beef would be the first strategic category. When we started going to market, we're like, okay, um, we have all these plant-based products that are out there already. And one of the first things I did when we started was I tried all the plant-based dairy and meat products. And uh, I'm a beef and dairy farmer growing up, so I was used to eating a lot of beef and dairy. And I left after a day of doing all these tastings and I was like, wow, I can't believe people eat this stuff. And it really just drove home to me that most of the products were made for people who are making that choice, uh, reducing meat or dairy consumption for you know whatever personal reasons that people had, but they weren't really doing it from what I could see based on like sensory pleasure experience, which the vast majority of consumers are going to be, that is going to be the number one purchase driver and what I was you know very used to. And so we started going to market. We knew that there was this, essentially a latent anxiety that if it comes from plants, it's not going to taste good, um, especially in the meat and dairy um, you know, product field. And so when we went to market, we're like, well, you know, we have to get past that. And so we looked at a bunch of different routes. We thought about going 
uh, to you know younger generations and you know delivering products. We talked about going to like we're in Silicon Valley, so you can go to the tech campuses and you have a captive audience. You can do a lot of data and learning pretty quick. But at the end of the day, we looked at this and said, you know, we have to change the global perception of what plant-based food can be and show that plant-based food can be better than anything an animal ever could do. And as we thought about that, we looked at who the, the influencers in those communities were that could help us build credibility as a company. Because, you know, five years ago, before we went to the market, um, no one had tried our product yet. So we don't have any culinary, like deliciousness, credibility and craveability. And so we had looked and we're like, you know, in the, in the U.S., and this is growing globally, but you have this like culture of like meat chefs, whereas like a lot of the brand is really behind the, the love of meat, the love of the meat experience. And those are the consumers that come. And so we kind of saw it, went to, you know, the you know, food media capital of the world, New York City. I found David Chang, who was, you know, the meat chef of New York City and had essentially said that he'll never serve anything uh, vegetarian. And he tried impossible and he was blown away. And so he was our first uh, launch chef. And now it sends a message, not just to, you know, people in New York or his consumers, but everyone that this is different. Okay, this is going to be new. This is going to change the way we think about food when you have people like Tracy Desjardins, David Chang, Mei Chow here in Hong Kong, others like putting impossible on and not just putting on the menu, but highlighting it and saying, you know, this is an amazingly delicious food. And it changes the perception now and opens up people's minds so that when they have impossible, um, they're now interested. And then when they taste it, you know, they're converted. And then the repeat is really high once people get past that anxiety and actually try the product. And so it was a very focused, targeted, small approach initially to really drive the message that this is different. This is meat made from plants for meat eaters. Um, and it's, and it's worked. Definitely has. Uh, so this, uh, this subject is dear to my heart uh, about GMOs as our technology is obviously based in using genetic engineering in a more sustainable way. But I wanted to ask you about your experience. That's also something we've talked about in the past. If you think backwards five years, because I think now I'm assuming now it's an easier decision uh, when you guys decided that you're going to embrace uh, genetic engineered products, what made you make that decision? And then how how was it in the early days, or what was your experience through that? Yeah, I think I think the first thing I'd kind of answer this question on is the general perception that it's like you know it's a polarizing choice, and for us it's not really a polarizing choice. You know, if you look at all the medical associations, GMOs are safe. They're endorsed by the American Medical Association, National Academy of Science. Uh, World Health Organization, many, many more. So from a scientific perspective, there isn't really a polarized opinion. Now there is confusion in the market, I think in a lot of this and a lack of information, which then leads us to our strategy of how we went to market is, you know, our, we're a very science-led organization. Pat, our founder is an MD-PhD. Our head of health and nutrition is an MD-PhD. And, you know, they've been with the company really, you know, since the start. And so, when we go to market, then it, we were kind of taking part of the responsibility. It's our job to educate. It's our job to be extremely transparent because I think a lot of the confusion and perception is just by people don't know, you know, people haven't had the like, transparency in the food system as we need to be. And so um, right. I think we were the first company for a retail product to put the genetic um, bioengineered um, bug on our product. And that was, you know, a choice. It was voluntary. And uh, we wanted to do that because we want to be as transparent as we can to help consumers come with us. And I think by being transparent, then it also helps build trust through the system. Yeah. Um, we invite you know, all kinds of people in to see our technology, uh, report on it. We do you know podcasts like this. 
And it's like, the more transparent we can be, the more we can talk about it, the more it kind of demystifies. And what we've seen is, you know, it was something that we we knew we were going to lean into. It's the right thing to do for science. It's the right thing to do for environmental sustainability and nutrition as we continue to scale. And it's better to get ahead of it, be transparent, be open, and help educate and pull people with us um, than to you know try to skirt around it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think you you've built such a positive brand and. It helps educate people, which is something we need. I, I was surprised in my journey how how little people actually know about the agricultural system or really where food comes from. Yeah, I think the. I mean, if we went back hundreds of years, the vast majority of people globally were in the agricultural system and growing yeah. food, whether directly for your helps or your neighbors or your communities. Now, over time, in the you know last hundred years with industrialization, um, more people are more disconnected and even. Me personally, going from a farm to Minneapolis and to California and now living in Hong Kong, um, you know, my personal connection with the agricultural system of the food I eat, you know, was more and more disconnected in a lot of ways, but I still have that personal connection based on, you know, growing up in that environment. But it's like, I, you know, when you buy stuff, it's, you buy, you buy a food that's ready for you to eat or in a restaurant, um, um, but you're not really seeing how it's connected back to how it's made. And I think that's yeah, something Strawberries that, in a clamshell. Totally. For example. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And if you think about something like strawberries in a clamshell, the more you can kind of build a story behind it of how it's grown, um, I think that it actually is really good for consumers then to make that connection back to what our, where food comes from, what it means. And I think that's, I think a lot of the supply chain changes I'm saying coming now, it's like it is looking for more transparency through our food, our food system. And consumers, especially the younger generations, are really caring more and more about where their food comes from, which I think is really cool. Yeah. I agree with that. It definitely a shift. If we talk about the supply chains and the impact um, or driving even further impact, you know, Impossible Foods is very much about soybeans as one of the large ingredients. I don't know if you can share, but do you have any other plans of plans to increase impact throughout the farming system of soybeans, not just at the, the, you know, the level of not feeding them to animals, but using them directly for the product, but really at the farming level? Yeah, I think... Um... I'll answer this a few different ways. And I think the, the vast majority of the agricultural system right now is designed to grow crops to feed the animals. And then we consume the animals um, out as meat. And it's just an extremely inefficient system. But it makes sense that the agricultural system is designed that way because animals are so inefficient. They need a lot of feed to be able to produce food for us. And so I think as we think about how the agricultural systems are going to evolve, they'll evolve much more for direct human nutrition than they are for animal nutrition, which then essentially it opens up the crop possibilities and the different uh, nutrients that we need between proteins, fats, and micronutrients to a much wider variety of crops. I mean, soybeans are great. They're, you look at uh, globally scaled protein crops and really protein crops are used in human nutrition now. Soybeans are by far the biggest. You have wheat protein and, and wheat you know, that goes into a lot of different products. Uh, pea protein's growing. You'll see some smaller ones starting to grow, but there's really not that many yet. And it's really concentrated in soy since soy has really been grown for, uh, for oil and then animal feed uh, in general. And so I think as you think about the evolution of agricultural systems, I think it's really exciting to see the variety and diversity of how it's going to evolve because I think it's going to go a lot of different directions. Um, for us, it's like soy is a great protein for essential amino acid balance. It's a, you know, a high protein crop, so it's affordable, it's scaled. And so there aren't too many in the plant-based ecosystem right now that are really scaled to the global scale that we're intending to use. And then every, every um, product that we you know, replace for 
uh, meat and essentially convert it to impossible, we reduce the amount of um, soy that's needed since we're so much more efficient than an animal would be. And so it's directly essentially making that crop more effective and more efficient for human nutrition. And so it's been a, a you know a good staple of our current product. I think over time, we can see that now evolving more for a crop for human nutrition too. And the properties you need out of soy for human nutrition are certainly different than you know, what you need for pig feed. Um, and so I think, you know, soybeans are, you know, I don't know, you know more about this, about how many different like strains of seeds there are, but I, very few actually, that's my shock. Very few. (laughs) Very few. Okay. I mean, that's the thing about agriculture is every time we dig deep into something, we find out that there's almost nothing. So it started with the chemicals, very few, the technology in the seed, almost, you know, just two traits. And now we're looking at the genetics and there's almost no variability. A soybeans a soybean. I think mostly because it's been bred for yield only, right? right? And everything else was just neglected. So I was going to ask you, yeah, breeding not for yield, that's a new concept for this industry. That's for sure. Totally. And you're right. And you kind of have to breed for yield just because the efficient, the system for feeding it to animals is so inefficient. You need right. more and more and more and uh, with the land. That's and they don't care about the flavor so much, I would assume. Right. Yep. And that's right. And so the properties are going to change. Now you can essentially afford effectively to put more of these uh, traits into the product as you breed for the right things. And then essentially it, it creates a different level of value for you know the whole value chain. And so I think it's, uh, I mean, we're just getting started in this, but I think the opportunities are endless. I think just from the fact that there's uh, someone interested in doing something different, it's going to drive so much change in the industry because there's so many things we can do. We haven't even started. Definitely. Well, this this was great. I think we ran out of time, unfortunately. I had a few more questions, but it's always inspiring to talk to you. And, and you guys have driven a revolution. It's uh, it's just really makes me happy to see it happen. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. Very excited about all the work that you're doing as well. It's all exciting. And that's our show for this episode. Thank you again to Nick Holla from Impossible Foods for joining us today. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode and please share any feedback you have with us via LinkedIn, our Twitter account at inner underscore plant or in the comments section. Thanks for listening.